Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and I'm speaking for both myself and my rhinovirus today. And this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us on behalf of both me and my head cold. I just finished talking with Kara Swanson about her new book, Banking on the Body, The Market in Blood, Milk, and Sperm in Modern America. This came out in 2014 with Harvard University Press. Now, this is an especially fascinating book for anybody interested in the histories of law and of medicine and the places at which those histories intersect, especially in the context of the 19th and the 20th century, and especially in the context of the history of America. So what Swanson does is she looks at the histories of the first body products to be banked, okay, and the first body parts to be thought of in this context as body products. That is human milk blood, and semen. And she looks at the ways in which the idea of and the metaphor of the bank not only becomes part of how we think about what it is to store and um, integrate these products into a market, but also how that's really shaped legislation and popular discourse and specialist discourse on the um, relationship between markets, commodities, and body parts. And she gives us, by the end of the book, um, her own ideas for how we might use the history that she gives us over the rest of the book to inform ways of thinking about moving forward. So it's a really fascinating study. It's full of all kinds of really wonderful stories. And it's also just a really great book to read if you've got any interest in the historical foundations and the conceptual foundations of kinds of medical and social institutions that many of us live with in our daily lives. So it's really well worth the read. It was a great pleasure to talk with Kara about it, both on behalf of me and my rhinovirus, who you'll hear um, interjecting itself or which you'll hear interjecting itself at various points in the conversation through coughing. I apologize for that, but apparently it was a very exciting book for my head cold. Um, and I, I hope you have a chance to read that book, um, to get your hands on a copy and I hope you enjoy the interview. I certainly did. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Kara Swanson about her new book, Banking on the Body. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Cara, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. It's a super great book. I think it's a really timely and important book, and I'm really grateful that you've made the time. So welcome. Thank you. Cara, can you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by just saying a little bit about how you came to the field, and specifically, what brought you to academic work on the history of medicine? Well, I'd say I followed a non-traditional path. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in uh, laboratory science and molecular biophysics and biochemistry, and I was pretty sure that I was going to be a research scientist, so I went off to get my doctorate in that area, and I very quickly realized that I was much more of a humanist than I had realized. I wanted to be um, uh, engaged with people and with texts and with questions that were um, broader than uh, individual scientific research questions. Um, so when I kind of picked my head up from the lab bench and looked around, um, I decided to go to law school. I saw law as a system that used um, similar logical reasoning to the, to science, but applied that reasoning to broader um, social questions and would allow me to be out engaged in the world. Um, so I earned my law degree and I went to um, practice law and I did that for about 10 years. And when I started practicing law, they were pretty excited to have me in my firm because I had the science background, which was less common among lawyers. And they asked me to take the patent bar and to work in um, intellectual property. And that led me to all kinds of interesting questions about what's property and what's not property and what's science and what's technology and what the commercialization of science um, is like and should be. And none of my clients were going to pay me to think about the answers to those broader <laughs> questions. Um, so it was about that time 
I started poking around and thinking about how I could study these questions that I really discovered um, the history of science, technology, and medicine as a um, field. Uh, and once I found it, I it was a very much an aha moment. I'm like, that is um, where I belong. That's where I can take my expertise in science, my expertise in law, and um, use them within this disciplinary framework to answer the kinds of questions that I was starting to find very interesting. That's totally fascinating and actually really, really inspiring. So the book that we're talking about today traces the history of body banks of various sorts from the 19th century to today, and it focuses especially on three fluids that you say early in the book were understood to be constitutive of the self in different ways at different points of this history milk, blood, and sperm. And then we also talk um, at the end a little bit about eggs. So how did you come to work on this topic in particular, and, and what brought you to the decision to, to create a book-length object about this topic? Well, as I said, I was very interested in questions of how um, scientific knowledge and scientific objects move from the lab to the market. Um, I had been involved in that as um, uh, a lawyer, uh, and I had some understanding of that as a scientist working in um, molecular biology at the beginning of the biotech revolution, right? That was one of the career paths that everybody was talking about. Um, and um, when I realized that sometimes when science moves from the lab to the market, um, in this medical framework, as I started to understand the history of medicine, I thought that's really the most interesting aspect of this broader question, because when you put um, the human body in that frame, you're not just moving um, a laboratory discovery to the market, but you're moving a laboratory discovery and a scientific object that is sourced from the human body. Um, um, one of my law school colleagues calls that a taboo trade. It's sort of the ultimate misdeed to marketize the human body. The, there I saw a location where I could um, really ask these questions in um, interesting and um, specific ways. Um, and my sort of my aha moment for the project, um, I was thinking about um, blood particularly um, and reading works about how um, – uh, blood had been made into a series of blood products like clotting factors. Um, and I sort of had this aha moment when I thought, yeah, we get blood from the blood bank. And I knew about blood banks. My mother had worked in a blood bank when I was a small child as a medical technologist. I had volunteered for the Red Cross in college and recruited people to give um, uh, donations. Um, and I thought, a bank? Why a bank? A bank has... Um, is a commercial institution, right? And we're choosing this commercial institution as a way of describing how we collect and distribute blood. Um, so that was part of the aha moment. And the second part of the aha moment was it's not just blood we bank. It's other things as well. We've used that um, metaphor to understand how we collect um, these particular types of body products and distribute them, how we exchange them between strangers, people that don't um, know each other. Great. Thank you so much. So the introduction really lays out um, a lot, some of the background regarding the kinds of conceptual and historical um, you know, metaphors and other uh, raw materials that are going to go into informing the case studies and the chapters to come. Once we get to the chapters, we get into some really fascinating people and really fascinating case studies, and I'd like to start there. So at the beginning of the 20th century, as you say early on in the first chapter, <coughs> excuse me, doctors started to use and to think about human bodies as sources of medical therapeutics, and they were willing in a new way to use human body parts and also active human bodies to cure other bodies, especially in their most desperate cases. And we lay this out at the beginning of the first chapter. To do this, what they needed to do were um, two things. First, they needed to develop a kind of expertise and set of skills in harvesting these body products. And also, they needed a supply. They needed a source of supply for these body products um, that was going to cooperate with them and be willing to give up this material. So you look at two case studies in which this was happening early on, milk and blood, and we'll, we'll talk about them in turn. 
So in the first case um, of transforming milk into a commodity, you introduce us to Dr. Fritz Talbot. Now, he was involved in, among other things, disciplining the, uh, the figure of the wet nurse so that her job became production, kind of, you, I think, compared to a dairy cow, rather than suckling of an infant. And this becomes really crucial to the development of the idea of milk as a commodity. So can you perhaps start us off by talking about this Talbot, um, this idea of disciplining of the wet nurse, and how did milk become a commodity in this early stage of the story? Um, I love talking about Fritz Talbot because I'm sitting in Boston and he is such a Bostonian. Um, Fritz Talbot was from a well-to-do um, Boston family and um, in um, the early 20th century, he had just recently graduated from Harvard Medical School. He was quite young. Um, he was trying to establish his practice. Um, he was interested in um, what was just becoming the specialty of pediatrics, this idea that you might concentrate on um, babies and young children as uh, your patient population. And um, doctors didn't have a lot in their medical arsenals to treat babies, and they really focused on um, diet and nutrition as the best way they could um, um, intervene to keep their patients um, alive. And often that meant um, um, figuring out how to feed a baby whose mother was not able to nurse the baby for a wide range of reasons. So Talbot's very new. He comes into the situation early in his career where he's got a um, uh, infant that he's responsible for, and he thinks the best way he can treat this child and, in fact, save this child's life is to find some source of non-maternal breast milk, a wet nurse for the baby. And so here he is. He's a well-educated uh, doctor, and he gets on the streetcars in Boston and starts crisscrossing the poorer neighborhoods, interviewing women, trying to find a woman who's lactating, who's willing to um, abandon her own baby, come move into the home of this family, and um, nurse the child um, for wages. And the difference between Talbot and all of his other um, colleagues who were doing the similar things across the United States at that time was you could just see he was getting really exasperated. This is not why I went to medical school. This is not what I'm trained for. Right? You talk about disciplining the wet nurse. He wanted to discipline the wet nurse because he didn't want to waste his time doing this. Right? That that was not why he went to medical school. He wanted to have um, the milk is what he needed, right? Not the woman's body. So how could he have the milk available so he could just write a prescription on a pad and hand it to his patient and the milk would um, get to his patient without him having to uh, interview and recruit and cajole um, wet nurses? Thank you so much. And you talk about the kinds of technologies that were involved in disciplining these wet nurses, and they involved special kinds of clothing um, and a, a directory, um, as well as the consideration of what made for an ideal donor, right? an ideal donor of human milk. Now, human milk was the first of these body products that you talk about in the book that was, as you put it, institutionally organized in disembodied form, but of course it wasn't the only one. And you also look in this chapter at the making of human blood into a commodity to a body product. Now, this was actually a lot trickier than it was in the case of milk. And can you talk a little bit about why that was? How significantly in this early stage of the story did this transformation of blood um, differ importantly from what was happening with human milk? Well, you said there were two parts to turning these previously intimate um, personal parts of the human body into commodities, into medical technologies. One was developing expertise in harvesting, and the other was developing a supply chain. Um, blood was particularly tricky. Um, we knew how to harvest human milk, right? You put the baby to the breast, and it was a, already a known technology that um, women could manually express milk and hand it to a baby in a bottle. Um, bottles existed, nipples existed, feeding spoons existed to um, get milk into babies. Um, blood, we were great at harvesting, right? Doctors had been um, involved in bloodletting for a really long time, but that blood just splashed on the floor in a basin. It wasn't collected. What was really the trick with uh, blood and using it for um, medical treatment was the transfusion part. How do you get it in? to the recipient, because we all know what happens with blood when you take it out of the body. If, if you don't have hemophilia, it clots. It clots quickly. It doesn't flow easily into another body. So 
that was really the big um, trick with um, blood, was figuring out how to get it into the other body um, and um, also dealing with the fact that taking blood out of a healthy body, um, we've been bloodletting to um, to treat patients for a long time, but if you had somebody who wasn't sick, um, what did it mean to take blood out of their body and, and um, uh, surgically open up a healthy body for the benefit of um, somebody else? That was a, um, a a medical decision that was newly being made at this time. We're going to ask you to open up your veins on behalf of somebody else. And then we have to figure out how to do that. So along those lines, you actually talk in both of these cases um, about the figure of the donor. And we talked a little bit about um, this figure in the case of milk. And you also talk about this figure in the case of blood. And so you talk about the idea of salesmen of blood in the 1930s uh, as being healthy, full-blooded young men and now, this eventually turns into, by the end of the story, a, a, an account of the emergence of the figure of the professional donor. So can you talk a little bit about that? What is the, where does the professional donor come in? And um, this can maybe turn us to these issues of the supply side of the problem. Um, so both with respect to milk and with respect to blood, um, as you said, they had to learn how to harvest these uh, body products. They had to learn how to use them, and then they had to develop a supply. And um, what is particularly striking to a contemporary um, um, person is that doctors just matter-of-factly turn to cash as the way of ensuring that supply. How are you going to get somebody to give you your body product? You're going to pay them. How are you going to get somebody to open their veins? You're going to pay them. Um, and when I started on this project, I um, I was trained in the um, word donation, right? I recruited blood donors when I was working for the Red Cross, and we knew what donors were, right? They were people who weren't paid. I was begging people to give out of the goodness of their heart. So when I ran into this phrase professional donor, I thought, well, this is kind of, um, um, you know, a rhetorical cover-up. We're pretending that they're donors, and we know donors are good, but we're calling them professional donors, and that's just a way of, of um, avoiding using the word seller, um, but as I started to investigate the professional donor and the use of that phrase and the origins of um, body product exchange, I realized it was a very carefully crafted phrase. And it was a phrase not intended to hide the sordidness of sales, but it was a phrase intended to elevate, as you say, a profession. Profession, of course, has an um, air of um, I'm not just a tradesman selling uh, goods for a price. I'm in service. Um, I have an ethic, an obligation, uh, uh, as well as my, um, as well as getting paid for this. So, professional donor was a phrase chosen by the medical profession to encourage their supply chain, to encourage people to become blood sellers, and to um, also encourage um, the rest of us, those of us who are patients or potential patients, to think of. Um, these sellers and the blood or milk they were providing as um, good and safe because it was coming from professional donors, right? They had, and the professional donor was a medically constructed figure that not only received cash, but uh, had uh, been subject to a physical exam. Um, in the case of um, blood donors in New York City, where they really got this organized, um, they were, um, by city regulation, a donor was defined and regulated as somebody who had periodic physical exams, who carried around a booklet with their name and picture in it, and every exam was recorded, every donation was recorded, how much blood was taken. That was um, protecting the patient um, from um, possibly getting diseases from an uninspected body, and it was protecting the um, supplier from giving too often, right? If you saw somebody had sold their blood just five days before, you, you were supposed to reject them and say, no, we need to have another um, professional um, donor here. So um, the professional donor as a, a lauded profession um, was something that was um, uh, one of the surprises of this project to me, to find how um, very carefully not only doctors turned to cash to get their supply chain, but how they deliberately built up this model of um, the professional donor um, to suit their ends. Great. 
Now enter Dr. Bernard Fantis in around 1937. Now he was a pharmacologist and an expert in therapeutics who worked at the Cook County Hospital in Chicago, and he was interested for various reasons in eliminating the figure of the paid donor. Now he borrows the term bank from the finance world. This is a really crucial part of the story. This is where the term bank comes into the context, um, this context of the story in a very explicit way. So he's borrowing the term bank from the world of finance, and he's using it to describe the organization of stored blood in his hospital, the Cook County Hospital, again, in Chicago. Now, he develops this system where he's trying to manage stored blood in the hospital like a bank, and he sets up this whole accounting system, and it's really fascinating. So can you bring us into this part of the story by basically talking about um, the fantasy system and in what what do we need to understand about this system to understand the larger arguments that you're making in this part of the book? So fantasy in the 30s is um, uh, a pathologist, a trained doctor, but um, practicing um, uh, more in the um, pathology and pharmacology side. And he's in a world in which... Um, blood transfusion is becoming um, more common, more successful. Um, And across the United States, there are um, blood donor registries, registries of professional donors, lists of inspected, medically inspected bodies of people willing to sell their blood for a price. You call up the registry, you say, I need um, two pints of A negative. They send the body over to your bedside and the transfusion is performed from the professional donor to the patient, um, and a per pint um, fee is charged. The set fee set by the registry, the patient needs to um, pay that. Um, uh, Similarly with milk, there are mother's milk stations across the United States where milk is being bought by the ounce, and then um, Talbot and his fellow pediatricians can do what Talbot wanted, write a prescription for um, mother's milk and his patients take it to the milk station and get it filled and they buy their bottles of milk um, by the ounce. So um, this is the world uh, of medical practice um, and the world of potential. Talbot is, or Fantas is in some sense, the kind of the socioeconomic opposite of Talbot. Talbot came from the elite in Boston. He had a lot of resources. Um, Fantas was the um, an immigrant to the United States, arrived as a teenager with his parents. His dad bartered um, printing services to the medical school in Chicago to help him get his um, degree. He's kind of hard scrabbled up the, the uh, hard way. And when he gets this job at Cook County Hospital, um, those of us who've lived in and around Chicago know of Cook County Hospital as the public hospital. Cook County is the county in which the city of Chicago um, sits. It's the municipal hospital. It's where pe- the people that couldn't afford to go to a private hospital went. It's the charity um, hospital. Here it is, 1937, depths of the Great Depression. Nobody has any money. The patients don't have any money. Cook County doesn't have any money. Chicago doesn't have any money. You go back and look at the history of that hospital at that moment. They're talking about, you know, literally scrambling for um, sutures and needles to do surgery, right? Every little scrap of um, what they need to practice medicine is hard um, to come by. So Fantas is put in charge of the lab um, uh, that's going to supply all the therapeutics that are needed in the hospital, and one of these is blood, right? And um, there's no way that he can call up a professional donor registry and have a donor come to the bedside of one of his patients because his patients don't have the 25 or $50 you need to pay the donor and the hospital can't step in and um, pay that fee um, either. So Fantas does um, two things, right? As you say, he sets up the system of stored blood. He starts thinking about blood as not a direct person to person um, donation, but a, um, um, a, communal inventory kept in the refrigerator. This is part of the history of technology as well as the history of uh, medicine because the refrigerator was a very new technology. It's actually the most expensive and difficult thing for him to get as he sets up a blood bank. Um, And um, his goal is to eliminate the professional donor, not in all places and all times, but for his patients. How can he get his patients blood? They don't have cash, but they do have Blood. They have their own blood. They may know somebody with blood. Um, 
And the classic problem with that is that, well, you have to find somebody who is of the right type, who doesn't have disease, who's eligible to give. It's hard. To, it's harder to find. It's less efficient to find an unpaid donor than a professional um, donor. And his big um, innovation is to, um, through the blood bank, to think of blood in abstract terms as a fungible unit of value rather than um, a particular um, aliquot of blood moving from person to person. So if you receive a pint of blood at the Cook County Hospital, um, the doctor will order you a, a pint of O positive. It will come from the bank, which is the refrigerator. And then you, the doctor and the patient, have this debt to the bank. Um, and they can repay the debt with blood, and they don't have to have um, O-positive blood to pay it back. This means that you don't have to pay at the moment you receive it. So this means that the patient, once the patient's recovered, could put the pint of blood back in the bank. Or if the patient is fortunate enough to have friends and family willing to give, um, the doctor can find one of those friends and family who's healthy enough to give and draw a pint of blood from them. And we don't care if it's O-positive. As long as it's a pint, we can put it in the bank and somebody somewhere else down the line will be able to use it because you're no longer giving for your particular patient. You're just giving to restore that unit of value in um, the common inventory. So by changing the blood system from this person-to-person individual sale to um, this abstract units of value through the common inventory. And as you said, Fantas um, set up very careful account books, kept track of his um, blood loans and credits and debits. Um, he was able a lot of the time to accomplish his goal, which was to make this new medical therapeutic available to his patients who didn't have enough cash to go out and buy at the free market to increase the allocation of this therapeutic, not just on the basis of ability to pay, but on the basis of need. So it was very much uh, a sneaky move where he, he, he brought this term bank into the profession for the first time. He said, I want you to think about this as a bank. Uh, if you withdraw something from the bank, you have to put it back in. Otherwise, your, um, your account books won't balance. But he was using it in order to um, increase access to this technology and to um, decrease the need for um, buying and selling blood. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, so you mentioned one way of identifying blood by types, and that is the idea of blood types, and, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are, or perhaps all listeners are familiar with that notion um, from our modern biomedical system. But there were other types or kinds that were associated with blood in this part of the story as well, and you talk in this chapter about the issue of the race and the sex of blood donors. Now, since this is going to continue to come up um, in later chapters as well, can you talk a little bit about what's happening in this part of the story um, with Fantis and his colleagues in terms of worries about our notions of the race and the sex of blood donors. What's important for us to understand about that at this point? Well, all, all the body products that I talk about, and you started out um, talking about how the um, three that I concentrate on the book, blood and milk and um, semen, um, all have a long sociocultural history of being um, very much tied to the individual qualities of the bodies in which they exist and in, in the course of my story from which they become sourced, right? They're no longer embodied, they're disembodied. But this idea that um, the blood, the milk, the semen still carry qualities with them when you take them out of the body um, is um, very deeply embedded. We talk about um, blood brothers. We talk about being of the blood royal, um, uh, um, that sharing blood is a way of sharing a whole range of personal characteristics. And in the United States, um, that's very much tied up with our um, past of racialized human slavery and the, and the one drop of blood rule, right, in terms of defining who could be an enslaved African-American and who was um, not African-American and therefore not subject um, to slavery. Uh, unfortunately, there's a sort of a whole law that's developed in terms of thinking about um, blood and the proprietation of, of um, humans. So um, as... Um, Doctors are talking about using these, these uh, body products as therapeutics. They're doing that in this context. Um, and to the extent that they can, I talked about how Talbot wanted to be more efficient. Um, 
they are hoping to do away with those um, sort of folk notions that um, the source matters. Um, Tell was actually quite successful in the milk station for the most part. They actually combine milk from different women um, as part of the preparation as they pasteurize and bottle the milk. Um, so it's no longer, it's really no longer a one-to-one um, transaction. And it's very interesting to see how um, popular expressions of anxiety about um, qualities of the wet nurse, which had been always an issue when you were hiring a wet nurse, you know, um, is she Irish was a concern in, in uh, Boston because we, um, the, uh, non-Irish Bostons assumed that Irish had undesirable qualities. You know, does she eat funny foods? Uh, is she intemperate? The worries that those qualities would go with the milk really um, subside as uh, the milk is processed through um, the milk station. With um, blood, um, as doctors offer uh, money to donors, um, they're also sort of trying to focus on just getting the blood into patients. And there's definitely examples of um, cross-racial blood transfusions early on when doctors find somebody who's willing to sell and somebody that's willing to um, uh, receive. But um, you can also imagine that up until Fantas with the blood bank, these donations were person to person, right? The, the donor came to your bedside and was going to, um, at, at that moment, sell you the blood. So either you, the patient, if you were conscious, or your family could see who the donor um, was and eyeball them. Are they somebody who's like me? Are they truly a professional donor that I'm comfortable receiving from? Or is there something that makes me uneasy about um, them? And Fantas, like many of his colleagues, felt that the um, uh, race of the blood donor was something that was important to the recipient. And he, matter-of-factly, when he started telling people how to run a blood bank. He said, well, you have to keep track of um, information about the donor. You have to trace each bottle through the blood bank um, for good medical reasons. If your patient got hepatitis or malaria, you want to know um, whose blood they got and go back and track down that person, make sure they're not selling any more blood or giving any more blood. Um, and he assumed that race was an uh, important factor to write down. Um, I haven't found any evidence that in Cook County they did anything more that, but certainly in other parts of the country, parts of the country where Jim Crow was much more established, um, the blood bank from the get-go was racially segregated. So Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, there's a picture of their blood bank. They have shelf A for um, white blood and shelf B for black blood, and you are um, running two separate sets of account books for each shelf, which definitely decreases the efficiency of what you're doing. No question about that. To have to worry about that, um, and you um, see traces throughout the 30s, 40s, 50s of um, doctors being pretty willing to um, transgress those um, racially racial segregations in the blood bank when they needed blood for a patient, just to grab whatever was available and give it to them because. Um, they knew from a medical perspective it didn't make a difference, and they figured their patients would rather live um, than be told there's not any blood on their particular um, shelf. But um, the racial segregation of the blood system in this country gets um, built in from these early beginnings and persists um, well into um, the 1960s, causing constant um, tension and opposition um, all through the um, 40s and 50s. Thank you so much, Cara. So we enter, um, so from this part of the story, we enter into the context of World War II. Now you talk us through in this chapter, or in rather the end of chapter two, something that I won't ask you to talk too much about, but I'll just kind of put out there because it leads us into the next part of the book. You talk about World War II in the context of the development of the idea of turning the nation into one big blood bank. So this begins as a program um, that you describe called Blood for Britain, and it becomes the basis of a national blood American blood in this context is treated as a public collective resource. And you, uh, you introduce us in this part of the book as well to the Red Cross coming into this story. Now, the Red Cross um, develops a scheme to turn the wartime giant blood bank into a peacetime blood supply, again, based on unpaid civic-minded donors. Now, this becomes a really interesting issue, especially as we move into the third chapter. So on the one hand, um, in this context, it's post-war now, it's after World War II, um, or at least in, in part of this story, we have the Red Cross. Now, for them, 
the blood supply is, um, this is unpaid, it's, it's a civic issue. They didn't use the term bank even metaphorically, okay? So you, you mentioned that here. Now, on the other hand, there are um, people involved in organized medicine who are thinking about the blood supply, thinking about the kinds of metaphors used to describe the blood supply, and thinking about how to manage the blood supply in really different ways. So in this context, you introduce us to Mrs. Bernice Hemphill, who in Honolulu on December 7th, 1941, becomes um, what we might describe as the mother of blood blanking, of blood banking rather. And she leads blood banks in their fight against the Red Cross. So can you introduce us to Miss, this, uh, Mrs. Bernice Hemphill, the mother of blood banking? What is she doing and how does this differ importantly from what's happening with the Red Cross in this context? Um, Mrs. Bernice Hemphill um, is a fascinating figure. Somebody did a great oral history with her um, before her death, which I very much um, uh, appreciate. Um, she er, she came to dislike the Red Cross um, during um, World War II, um, and um, I've always wondered if that didn't have a bit of a, a, a gendered component to it. She was um, a, a very unusual woman. She had a degree in what we would today call um, medical technology. She was actually trained in laboratory techniques um, and very unusual, very new degree. And the uh, Red Cross had a very rigid way of setting up its um, blood donation systems where there was a role for one doctor, several nurses, and volunteers. And there was really no place to slot in um, Mrs. Hemphill's expertise in that standard system. And I think that might have been part of the reason that she always was sort of insulted at how the Red Cross handled uh, blood during the war. Um, she, as you say, became involved in... Um, blood banking because on Pearl Harbor Day, she's in Pearl Harbor as a uh, Navy wife, and she has this expertise. So when she, like many other people in Honolulu, um, almost instinctively go towards a hospital to volunteer their blood in response to this disaster, that same instinct that led Americans to do that um, on September um, 11th, 2001, was uh, present there in 1941. She... Um, she gets tired of standing in line after a while. She's a very go-getter woman. And she just pushes her way up to the front of the line, goes into the hospital, finds out that it's a disaster, and just starts working and literally doesn't go home for two weeks um, and devotes the rest of her life to working in um, blood banking. Um, and she becomes, as you say, a pivotal, pivotal figure in what was actually called at the time the blood bank wars. Should we think about blood as this communal research, we should ask for it from all who can give in order to give it free of charge to anybody that needs it, or should we think about it in um, uh, terms that draw from the blood bank metaphor to think about it in terms of financial terms, that you have a responsibility to repay your loans um, to the bank. And um, this very much gets wrapped up with how we think about um, medical care in America in the post-war um, period. Um, doctors um, are fighting in the 40s, a fight that they started fighting in the 20s and 30s. And by doctors, I mean um the American Medical Association, organizations of doctors, state medical associations, um, this anxiety about um, what's called, in a very stylized way, socialized medicine, any indication that the government is going to take control of medical care. Um, you know, Medicaid and Medicare are passing at this time. There's proposals for um, a more one-payer system that uh, Britain is implementing in the post-war period. Doctors don't want that. They want, um, they want local control. They want... Um, the ability to um, manage their practice on their own. And blood banking is brought into this um, fight. So doctors try and set things up that um, the Red Cross system is a um, socialized system that is the first step down the road to um, free surgery or free aspirin, these horrors, um, and that their system that that um, depends on the blood bank with people taking personal responsibility for their blood debts and repaying them is um, not only best for medicine, but best for the American way, because we all know that part of democracy is tied to capitalism. I'm saying that they knew this. They're arguing this. Um, and to take this socialized medicine is to um, 
um, teach Americans to be irresponsible and to teach them to be more like our Cold War uh, enemies. So there's a very interesting alignment of um, anxieties about how we finance medical care, um, Cold War geopolitics, and this metaphor that um, had become very successful and popular and common in the 30s and 40s, which um, encourages um, the blood supply to become a flashpoint for these larger debates. Are you going to pay for blood or are you going to expect to get it for free? Um, and if you expect to get it for free, you're communistic and anti-democratic. And if you're going to pay for it, you are a responsible um, American. And you can um, put a pint of blood in the blood bank just like you as a responsible husband and father would put part of your paycheck in the regular bank at the end of every um, uh, pay period. Now, you talk about um, this issue of uh, buying and selling blood and specifically the question should men be free to sell their blood in the context of the next chapter of introducing Richard Titmus and his book, The Gift Relationship from Human Blood to Social Policy. This came out in 1971. You use this to open up um, another really crucial issue in the story. And it's an issue that I think is really important to spend even just a little bit of time explaining because it comes up toward the end of the book. And that is the emergence of um, the, what you call the gift commodity dichotomy as a way of understanding these issues. Now, this dichotomy or the emergence of this gift commodity dichotomy has really, as you show at the very end of the book, has limited our discourse. It's really been central in shaping the history of body products in modern America. So in order for us to lay the foundation here to perhaps come back to that at the end, can you talk a little bit about the emergence of this idea of the gift commodity um, dichotomy and what's important for us to understand about that at this point in the story. So, I mean, that really brings me back to the, the questions that drew me to this topic, which was to try and understand, you know, why we use bank as the um, metaphor to describe these institutions. And then the next question, of course, well, what have the consequences been of that um, metaphor? And I think, um, I argue in the book that one of the consequences has been this gift commodity dichotomy and its limiting effect on um, uh, our thought. And it, as you say, it really, um, the the um, emergence of this dichotomy in the post-war um, uh, period um, is crucial to my argument in that way. And what I'm, what I'm arguing is that... Um, the blood bank wars, the stylized war about whether we were going to think about uh, blood banking and the blood inventory in financial terms or as this public um, resource, um, helped create what I call a um, market backlash, a sort of um, step back from this extremely marketized language that Bernice Hemphill and her compatriots were using in um, the 40s and 50s. And I argue in the book that there's... there's multiple causes um, for that um, backlash that um, um, uh, one cause was um, the doctor's surprise when they took their rhetoric of um, obligation to pay and buying and selling blood um, and were confronted with lawsuits involving um, blood transfusions that they were very shocked to find out that the courts were perfectly happy then to put these um, uh, use of blood for transfusions under the medical category of commercial law, the law that governed um, manufacturer products, the laws that governed um, trade. Doctors had never been put under that umbrella before. They were they were dealt with under medical malpractice law, and they'd spent a lot of time shaping that to their professional um, liking. They did not like being told that they were manufacturers of blood and subject to particularly a doctrine called the product liability doctrine, which made them strictly liable if a product they sold was unfit for its intended use. Lawyers were more than happy to argue that if I got hepatitis from the blood that I received from you, it was unfit for its intended um, use. So uh, law helped push them away from this notion of uh, buying and selling. Um, but um, as you say, Tiffis's book, published in 1970, which is what a lot of people think about when they think about um, uh, the blood supply system in America and the controversies that have existed about it for a very long time, um, 
didn't cause this uh, backlash or the dichotomy trope arise, but he really crystallized it. He was a British sociology writing, British sociologist writing from a British perspective, um, enthusiastically supporting um, the British national health system and post-war socialism in Britain and contrasting the American capitalistic system um, as um, worse for the American health and also worse for American society. So he, again, was using the blood um, inventory, just like American doctors were using it to, as a, an element of their battle against socialized medicine. He was using it the opposite way to say that socialized medicine um, is um, superior. Um, and um, his book also caused Americans to be defensive about their use of um, not only financial terminology, but their willingness to buy and sell blood, um, such that they started in the 70s um, moving away from the professional donor. We don't see that term anymore. We don't see professional donor. We see um, um, bowery bums and um, desperate sellers. These are not attractive figures. We need to get away from selling blood. We need to move towards um, unpaid suppliers. That's going to solve our legal problems. It's going to cause solve our public perception problems um, if we move away from this uh, this market terminology. Now, early um, in this story, you raise, and this comes up even explicitly in the third chapter, you raise the issue of the gendered nature of this discussion. So you raise, um, in particular, the issue of gender in the context of um, blood donation, um, pointing out for us that while the post-war blood donor was gendered masculine, that the blood bank workers, and you've talked about some of them, right, were gendered feminine. You talk about um, the gray ladies that were used, for example, by the Red Cross as kind of blood bank hostesses. And, and this issue came up a little bit when you were talking about Bernice Hemphill as well and, and the possible motivations um, perhaps for her actions and for her positionality in this story. Now, the issue of gender comes up uh, more and more explicitly as we move further into the book. Um, and we get there by looking in particular at a context that's um, quite different from the blood bank context, but that's comparable and really illuminating interesting ways, and that is the context of what you call feminine banks, milk banks, and the milk of human kindness. So human milk stations rapidly decreased in number in the first decade after the war, after World War II, and women, as you describe in this chapter, took matters into their own hands. Um, from this, we see the emergence of a kind of institution known as, um, and certainly known in the chapter as, a milk can you describe for us what's a milk bank and what do we need to understand about this in order to sort of understand the important um, comparisons and contrasts with what was happening with blood at the same time? So um, part of my goal when I structured the project to think about milk and blood and semen was that I was deliberately choosing um, one body fluid that was sourced only from women, one that was sourced only from men, and one that could be sourced from both women and men. Um, and to allow me to sort of think about the um, issues of gender in this in this context. And one of the things that I found in my research, um, as you've just said, was though blood can be sourced from women and men, um, uh, the the role of the professional donor, that preferred medical role created in the early days of blood transfusion, was very quickly gendered masculine. That although there was no physiological reason not to take blood from women, um, it was men who were becoming the salesmen of blood and getting paid for blood um, uh, in, the, uh, in the most part. And um, I think that we can see that gendering of the professional donor um, falls over into how we think about um, milk banking and later on um, uh, sperm banking. So um, as you said, milk, I said that blood banks became... Um, very common after Fantas, they everybody started setting up blood banks, thinking about their inventories in terms of banks, and that metaphor became so powerful that it it um, colonized other um, body products as well, and in particular um, milk. The mother's milk station as an institution had existed before the blood bank, right? Blood, uh, blood while well, they were still trying to worry about getting blood from one body to another. Um, milk had been institutionalized through the milk station. But when the blood bank becomes so popular, um, milk stations start being called in the pop the media um, milk banks throughout the 40s. And um, as new ones are being set up in um, the 50s, they're now called milk banks instead of um, milk stations. And they're talked about as just like a 
um, a blood bank. This hospital's now in the banking business. They have a blood bank, and now they're going to have a milk bank as well. Um, but that commonality of term hides, um, as you suggest, some um, significant differences and some differences that are tied to um, the gendering of milk banks and their product as, as this milk of human kindness that has a very feminine um, cast. So what do I mean when I say that? Well, um, um, I turn to another um, uh, post-war wife, Mrs. Jean Feagans, who was um, a suburban housewife in Evanston, Illinois, which is a well-to-do suburb of Chicago. And she had a premature baby in the mid-50s, and her doctor was a big advocate of breast milk for all babies, but especially for preemies. And like other um, mothers of premature babies, she did not have milk available to nurse her own child. And he said, here's the names of people that have recently delivered in my practice. See if any of them can pump extra milk for you. So she she literally bought breast milk pumps, called up people and said, can you use this pump and pump milk for my baby? And um, collected milk daily for her son and got him launched in, um, in life. And she, like Mrs. Hemphill, was a real go-getter. She was also a member of the Junior League. And she um, basically prodded the Junior League into setting up a mother's milk bank in Evanston with the idea that um, all premature babies, which particularly called a premature mother's milk bank, should have the ability to access what her baby had access. And by all, I mean that they should get it free of charge. It shouldn't be something that they have to go um, and buy. And just like she asked her um, fellow suburban housewives to donate milk to her baby, she didn't offer to pay them. Um, the milk bank that the junior leaguers set up was, uh, again, run from um, donations. These were suburban women who um, had husbands who made a good living, and part of the way that they showed that their husbands made a good living was that they didn't work and that they were involved in civic activities through the junior league um, and other things. And just like the junior league collected donations of old clothes and ran a thrift shop, they were going to collect donations of breast milk and run this breast milk bank that was um, – um, demonstrating the femininity and um, maternity of um, the donors by allowing them to participate in this way of helping other women's babies. So in this context, then, milk bankers are considering milk to be a gift and not a commodity. And you talk about the ways in which um, the sort of milk banks didn't encounter the kind of commercial law issues as well um, that blood had. So it's a really fascinating story um, in this part of the uh, book. And I'll just mention for listeners who might be particularly interested in this part of the story um, that there are a whole bunch of other things happening in this chapter that we won't have time to really go into detail and talk about, including um, in the founding in 1956 in Chicago of La Leche League um, that some listeners may may have heard about. Um, you talk about Prolacta emerging here and the work that that's doing. Um, and you also talk about really the increasing separation of what's happening here from the marketplace. Now, as we turn to the next chapter, which is the last body chapter, we turn to this other context that you just um, briefly were talking about before in the context of understanding the gender dimensions of the story that's being that's unfolding here in the book. And this is the idea of the sperm bank. Now, the sperm bank uh, is very, very different from what's going on in the um, context of the milk banks. But there's, again, some really interesting comparisons here. Now, you introduce us to Jerome K. Sherman as a kind of father of sperm banking. He is the figure that really made it possible to preserve sperm and increase its shelf life by working in um, an area of cryopreservation, so the freezing and then constituting of um, human body parts. And this is one of the developments that made it possible to bank sperm. <coughs> and you talk here about, you know, all kinds of elements that are really fascinating parts of the story, including, you know, the understanding and discussion of the eugenic implications of implanted semen, um, the, the um, emergence of custody cases involving donor children, the lack of, you know, clinical demand for this and the, you know, worries about early on in the emergence of these sperm banks um, inseminating women who were seen to be um, sort of uh, not viable mothers, right? So um, lesbian couples, unmarried women. So they're really interesting um, social history dimensions of this story. 
But to follow through the thread of the gendered elements of the story that we've been talking about, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about um, one of these issues in particular. And, and feel free to bring in any other elements of the story that you want. You talk about um, the one of the important things that happens with the emergence of sperm banks is they develop a for-profit model. Okay, so this is really different from what we saw with the milk banks. They're developing a for-profit model that focuses on recruiting patients as customers rather than serving doctors. And in light of their appeal to potential customers, there's a really interesting change that happens that you chart here. So in the last years of the 20th century, as you show here, sperm banks are reinvent reinventing their business. They're reinventing their business model. So rather than marketing their goods to and their services to men, which is what they had been doing, they start market their, marketing their goods and services to women. Um, this is a really interesting part of the story, and it also allows us to get into the related issues of the kind of gender differences in then selling sperm and selling eggs. So can you bring us into this part of the story, the, the, the gendered elements of sperm banking, both in terms of their appeal to a customer base and also the kind of differences in how we understand and how we should understand what's going on with selling eggs in this context? So um, I, I thought for me the biggest question I was trying to figure out with the sperm bank is um, why we unproblematically and without any laws saying that we can't um, routinely buy and sell sperm. Right? That we um, that is the world that we live in today. We have now online sperm banks. You can look at online catalogs. Um, there's no question that sperm donors are getting paid and that people are paying pretty hefty for per vial prices for that sperm. At the same time that we live in a world, and I was... Um, I was enculturated into a world of blood banking where you would never pay your blood supplier because we knew that to pay your blood supplier was um, to risk having contaminated, dirty, diseased blood. So how is that so different? And then once I understood the history of milk banking to see, well, that we also weren't paying milk suppliers. So why were we so ready to pay um, uh, semen suppliers? And um, as you say, that sort of has, um, um, I started tracing that difference to the um, outsider position of sperm banks. Um, they were, um, you didn't need sperm as a life or death model, right? There wasn't the medical incentive to just get that uh, therapeutic for a patient. So there was sort of more time and space for um, businessmen to enter the picture and think about, well, how can we make it go? How can we use sperm as technology? How can we use um, um, Jerry Sherman's uh, technology to have a, uh, a, a viable business, a business that would allow people to have um, babies that they um, um, wanted to have. And the interesting thing about um, uh, paying sperm donors, I think about this in terms of what we're trying to accomplish with the supply, with the suppliers and the recipients. Um, paying sperm donors allowed for the same kind of surveillance that the professional blood, do uh, blood donor once underwent, right? There's a lot of medical investigation of the sperm donor, periodic um, physical exams, and then constant testing of the semen samples that are produced. And if they're not up to snuff, the person doesn't get paid. Um, furthermore, um, you need to produce on site um, rather than bringing in or mailing in your milk as you do to milk bags today. So the money that's being given to suppliers is um, used um, to increase the surveillance, the discipline of its suppliers, helping keep the supply um, more standardized and um, um, more safe, and then um, allowing the banks to um, provide a standardized product to um, their um, uh, recipients. Um, and as you said, you can, you can contrast this to not just milk banking, um, but to um, what's called egg donation, but it's usually is, is known to be egg sales, right? The way that um, uh, women are recruited and paid to um, sell their eggs to a couple that needs um, a female gamete to um, create their family. And uh, Renee Almeling, who's a sociologist, had done research on this and shown that um, both men and women are actually paid about the same amount per hour for sperm donation and egg donation, but the um, payment streams are set up very differently, right? Men are paid in terms of piecework per production. Women are paid one lump sum for an entire egg retrieval cycle, regardless of the number of eggs that are um, retrieved. And through my analysis of the professional donor, 
um, and um, my understanding of what happened in milk banks, I was able to show that that distinction she saw in the contemporary um, gamete sales world um, can be traced back to these deeper roots about um, how the professional donor is gendered male. And we think about it as a job, as a salesman, um, that that is a masculine role. And that when we're looking for something that comes from women's bodies, um, we're much more comfortable thinking of her as a healthy married mother who's doing something out of the goodness of her maternal heart. Um, even if we are paying her, we're not going to call her a professional donor or a salesman. Um, and um, that that division that she saw between how we finance or compensate egg donation and sperm donation um, has these roots in this deeper construction about how we think about um, donation of body products generally. All right, thank you so much. Now, as we come to the end and come to the conclusion, there's only really um, a question or two that I'd like to ask you before we close up, although there are a million questions <laughs> that I'd love to ask you because it's such a fascinating book, so I'm really kind of trying to discipline myself here. Um, so you talk in the conclusion about something that you just raised very briefly before, and that is um, you know, some of the ways that Internet sites, some of the use of Internet sites, maybe like Craigslist or Facebook, have transformed this economy. Um, and, and I won't ask you to talk too much about that, but I'm marking that so that listeners who are particularly interested in that part of the story can know um, that there's a really fascinating conversation about that in the conclusion. You also raise the point here, and this is um, maybe the last uh, substantive question I'll ask you before we move to our uh, conclusion of our interview. You talk about how thinking about body products as civic property might usefully inform how we understand and proceed from this debate. So could you maybe um, help us wrap this up by talking a little bit about that? How does understanding body products as civic property help us see maybe some steps as we move forward? So one of my arguments in the book, the consequence of the banking metaphor, is that we have gotten trapped in this gift commodity dichotomy, and we're trapped not only in our um, our discourse, but in our laws, that so we have laws very specifically that say under the National Organ Transplant Act, you cannot sell uh, organs um, for a transplant. And thus, when people wanted to recruit bone marrow donors um, by offering them $3,000 in compensation, that was an illegal thing to do, even though people went to court and said, we don't have enough donors. We don't particularly don't have enough donors from particular ethnic backgrounds. We think this would really help everybody, and they, it's not going to be a cash and on the barrelhead transaction. We'll give you housing credit. We'll give you a donation to a charity of your choice. That, that was um, outlawed. So we've been we've hamstrung ourselves in terms of thinking creatively about um, making um, – uh, improving our supply of certain scarce resources and thus um, problems of injustice that exist when we have scarcity in terms of the allocation of um, uh, those um, uh, resources. Thank you so much. Now, Cara, there's a ton of material um, about like, it, within the book, about the book that we haven't had a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich story with all kinds of implications for today as well as for how we think about the history of medicine and of law. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you'd like to mention for listeners? Well, I did want to just tie back to that um, civic property concept that you raised um, because um, what I'm suggesting in the book is that um, property can be thought of as a way of facilitating market transactions, but we can also think about it in what is a um, oh, the classic way of thinking about it in early Republican United States, early days of the Republic, um, in which property is um, owned and transferred in ways that we're going to think about very carefully because we want that to um, promote and protect a vision of the public good, a particular type of polity. And I suggest that when doctors created these new forms of therapeutics and created these markets through mother's milk stations, through blood donor registries, that they were really thinking of them in um, civic property-like terms. Yes, we're going to have market exchanges, but it's not market exchanges to have the profit maximization. It's market exchanges to have the um, most available in the 
highest quality we can so that we as doctors can get it to our patients as efficiently as, as possible within our professional expertise. Um, and while there are definitely problems with what doctors did and how they did it and reliance on medical expertise, you know, we can bracket the racial discrimination that was going on. Um, I think there's some valuable um, lessons to be learned in thinking about these things from a civic property perspective that have been lost through our um, focus on the gift commodity economy and our focus on supplier payment. Thanks so much, Cara. So now that the book is out, and it's congratulations, it's an amazing book, and I think a really important book, as I've mentioned. What's next for you? Are there any projects you're working on right now that you're currently inspired by? Well, I have the good fortune to teach in a law school. Um, so one of my current projects is to um, take this work of history that I've done and um, think about it more normatively and more in a more precedence frame and draw upon it to write some uh, legal analysis about how we think about bodies and properties um, and um, markets. So that's something that I have the um, privilege and luxury to do because I move between um, my discipline of history and my discipline of law. Well, thank you again. It's really been a pleasure. Um, Congratulations again, and thanks so much for making the time. Thank you very much, Marla. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.